I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. reason that cancers can be difficult to treat is that the tumor microenvironment can hamper the ability of drugs to penetrate the tumor and facilitate the development of resistance to medicines. Alm Biosciences is developing targeted therapies that address the genetic drivers of a cancer and can disable defenses that hide tumors from the immune system. The company's lead experimental therapy is being tested in combination with immunotherapies to treat colorectal cancer and other solid tumors. We spoke to Vishal Doshi, chairman and CEO of Alm, about the development of resistance in cancers, the case for combining precision therapies with immunotherapies, and why he believes we can transform cancer from a deadly disease to a chronic condition. Vishal, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Danny. We're going to talk about targeted therapies, cancer, and the problem of resistance. I think for listeners, it might be helpful to start with the idea of kinases. What are they? What role do they play in human biology? And what role do they play in cancer? Yeah, no, thanks for that uh, uh, great question. So effectively, kinases are uh, enzymes that transfer a phosphate group uh, to a protein, uh, while phosphatases remove a phosphate group from protein. Uh, Together, uh, these two uh, processes, they modulate uh, various activities of proteins in a cell, uh, often in response to an external stimulus. There are approximately 538 kinases that are encoded in the human genome. And uh, all these kinases, they maintain the cellular function by turning protein function on while corresponding the phosphatases reverses the uh, action. Um, That's what kinases are. Uh, And uh, the the recent uh, advances that we've seen in targeted therapies has just given us more understanding and the fun- on the fundamental molecular mechanisms uh, underlying uh, the cancer cell signaling. Uh, and that has further validated uh, the crucial role of kinases in the carcinogenesis and the metastasis of various types of cancers. With the approval of Gleevec, the, the first tyrosine kinase inhibitor, we've seen this move towards targeted therapies and precision medicine in cancer. How effective have we been at changing the way cancer is treated? So I I think there's still a lot to be done. Um, And uh, we have certainly made a lot of progress, uh, as you rightly mentioned about with the approval of Gleevec and some recent uh, advancements in uh, some targeted therapies. But there's still a lot of work to be done uh, on that. Um, And... uh, my my vision uh, for cancer uh, is really to see if we can convert cancer into a more manageable disease, much very very much like 
a diabetes or a infectious disease um, where you don't accept a 20% response rate, do you, for a, for a fever? Um, you, you need the fever to go 100%, not 20%. So I, I think there's still a lot to be done, but great advancements have been made. Uh, and there are certain problems that we need to address um, to, to overcome uh, the cha- cha- challenge that cancer uh, brings in. Uh, one additional point I would like to add, uh, Danny, on this is cancer is not a single disease, right? You, if you break cancer down into sub-therapeutic um, uh, if you break cancer down, uh, down into various uh, 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 mo- modules per se, um, you can actually see there's so many different types of, uh, of, of uh, cancers uh, within the cancers, right? So it's more like niche uh, indications that we look at uh, even within one single indication. Classic example, colorectal cancer has different subtypes, content molecular subtypes, which we'll talk about in a little bit more detail. So I would say great advancements have been made, but still a lot of work that needs to be done on that. One of the challenges has been the ability of cancers to develop resistance to therapies like tyrosine kinase inhibitors. What happens within the tumor microenvironment that allows it to develop resistance to a given therapy? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a great question, and uh, it, it it comes. What comes to my mind is uh, innate resistance uh, and uh, innate resistance uh, to various therapeutic uh, interventions is kind of a hallmark of cancer. Uh, but at the same time, there is acquired resistance that has become a uh, emerging and daunting challenge to various anti-cancer treatments, which includes chemotherapy, radiation, and targeted therapy. Now, what this does is it kind of abolishes the efficacy of otherwise successful regimens. Um, What happens is the cancer cells, they gain resistance uh, through a variety of mechanisms, both at primary and metastatic sites. Uh, This includes the cell intrinsic and the extrinsic uh, factors. Um, but the, the, the point that remains overlooked is the extrinsic factor, uh, per se. And what happens in the tumor microenvironment plays a very important role, uh, in there. And in, in multiple aspects of cancer progression, uh, and particularly, which is a big problem of therapeutic resistance. And to just put it very simply, the tumor microenvironment decreases the drug penetration, it Uh, confers the proliferative and anti-apoptotic advantages to surviving cells. It facilitates the resistance without causing genetic mutations and epigenetic changes. And collectively, it it modifies the disease modality and distorts uh, distorts the clinical indices uh, as well. So to to overcome uh, all this tumor microenvironment, uh, it plays a very important role and an essential strategy to overcome cancer resistance uh, is to actually target the tumor microenvironment. But more importantly, we should also focus and we are also focusing on improving the therapeutic outcomes through precise intervention, what you call it as targeted therapy. One of the approaches we've seen to addressing tumor resistance is using combination therapies. What's the case for a combination approach. So, so the way 
um, I, I mean, if I were to draw a parallel uh, to this, um, right, um, when in, in 1960s and 1970s, when, uh, uh, when infectious disease was quite a big challenge uh, per se, um, one drug never did the trick, uh, right? And now you have various infectious diseases that can be solved by having uh, a, a cocktail therapy uh, per se, or even, even two to three drugs all at once. Now, uh, to your point about the case of combination therapy, let's just take an example of, uh, uh, of, of drug that is currently out in the market of, uh, of what we call it as Keytruda, right? Now, Keytruda as a monotherapy versus Keytruda as a combination therapy um, is, is actually seen that combination therapies as a, as a whole, um, it kind of takes a very holistic approach towards cancer treatment. You're not addressing one problem, but you're addressing another problem that might arise from the treatment uh, that you are giving, but you're, uh, you're forward-looking uh, that particular problem and trying to address that to a combination therapy. Hence, at OM, we are actually looking at combination therapy as the future of cancer, cancer treatment uh, to, to not have that resistance develop. And if there is any resistance that develops, you kind of address that by uh, uh, developing a combination treatment. You've talked about the potential to transform cancer from a deadly condition to a, a chronic disease. Can, can you explain that? Yes, um, this is this is very close to uh, close to our uh, philosophy uh, that we follow at Ohm Biosciences, and and the example I gave you uh, earlier, um, if you if you get fever or if you have diabetes, um, you don't you you don't want to be in a situation where the doctor tells you that your only twenty percent of your fever is going away, right? Um, you want the doctor to tell you, take this medicine and all your, all your uh, fever is going to go away. You're going to get better uh, up and running quickly. But unfortunately, in the case of cancer, um, and there is, there is a lot of progress that is made, but unfortunately, in the case of cancer, um, the, the, the quality of life gets impacted significantly. And uh, uh, what we at Ohm Biosciences would like to think uh, is if we can convert cancer into a manageable lifestyle disease where people can live with it, it's not the it's not the end of the world. It's not a death sentence when somebody gets cancer, uh, but it's it's really to manage your lifestyle, to manage your diet, to manage your medication, um, and so much more that goes into it. Uh, med, uh, therapeutic treatment plays a very important role in it. And if we can actually come up with a combination therapy um, or even a monotherapy uh, that enables a patient to live a healthy life um, after treatment, uh, that would be a game changer in how cancer is perceived out in the open uh, as, as a potential death sentence as well, right? So we don't want that to happen and we really want to work towards patients uh, uh, support uh, to, to try and see if we can come up with therapeutic treatments that improves the quality of life uh, for patients as well. Your lead experimental candidate is a MINK-1-2 inhibitor. What is MINK-1 and 2 and, and what role do they play in cancer? 
Yeah, so MINK1 and 2 are the enzymes that um, in uh, that, that uh, play a very important role in uh, phosphorylation of EIF4E. Um, EIF4E is overexpressed in majority of the cancers, um, and uh, phosphorylated EIF4E is overexpressed in majority of the cancers, including solid tumors and liquid tumors. Um, and uh, mink plays a very important role in that. It's a, it's a very in, uh, crucial pathway uh, from uh, an RNA to protein translation. And if you inhibit mink uh, one and two, uh, we have actually seen that um, it, it plays a very uh, crucial role uh, in inhibiting the phosphorylated EI4E, ultimately impacting the RNA to protein translation and ultimately impacting the uh, uh, cancer progression uh, to, to that effect. And hence, we are developing a small molecule uh, for MNK1 and 2 uh, with a specificity of 99.5%, which has always been a want from a MNK1-2. Um, and at the same time, we have conducted some recent studies that validates the mechanism uh, or the pathway that we are targeting um, uh, to see whether this uh, this is an interesting target or not. And we are very excited about the fact uh, that that is moving into a phase two study, a global phase two study with uh, 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 with patients participating in this study in a very imminent manner as well. Well, what is the lead therapy and how does it work? So as I explained to you, OM001 is a specific um, MNK12 uh, inhibitor, um, and uh, it, it, it kind of addresses uh, two uh, major problems, uh, right? So first, uh, as I uh, highlighted earlier, specificity has been a big issue uh, with uh, MNK1s. Uh, in our case, we have a 99%, 99.5% specificity. The second differentiator and second issue that we are trying to resolve over here, it's converting cold tumors into hot tumors. Uh, and, and in OM001's case, we actually have seen solid target engagement to validate the hypothesis that I just mentioned about converting cold tumors into hot tumors. And when you give this as a monotherapy, there is, there is some... Um, reduction uh, in tumor size, but when you give it as a combination uh, therapy, uh, it has it, it shown some significant tumor uh, growth inhibition in solid tumors that are very hard to treat. And, and to my point earlier, it's converting cold tumors into hot tumors. And that's, that's what is exciting uh, about OM001. The way it works is uh, it inhibits the phosphorylation of EIF4E, which is an important mechanism from an RNA to protein translation. I, I take it the significance of being able to turn a tumor from cold to hot is that it helps make it visible to the immune system? Uh, that is that is correct. And uh, no, you're absolutely right. And it also plays an important role in the tumor microenvironment uh, as well. So it kind of... Uh, addresses a problem of T cell exhaustion, um, and that's that's what uh, uh, that that's one of the major reasons why a lot of the immunotherapies don't necessarily work all the time because the T cell because of the T cell exhaustion is one of the challenges. And what OM001 does, it kind of addresses the problem of T cell exhaustion and and uh, helps with 
uh, with conversion from cold to hot tumors. You're looking at this in combination with the immunotherapy Keytruda and separately in combination with the immunotherapy T-centric. I, I take it that's why? That is precisely the reason why. Um, you, are, you are absolutely right. And we are very excited about uh, the combination uh, with uh, Keytruda as well as the combination with T-centric. Uh, the data should, uh, we are expecting the data to come in uh, in, in the next few quarters. Uh, but yes, you're you are absolutely right. Is that conversion of cold to hot tumor and specifically the indications that we have chosen, which I believe you are going to talk about, um, it, it plays a very important role in a combination therapy. Are you looking at 001 as a monotherapy at all? So we do have some data that gives us some validation around the fact that this drug works as a monotherapy. Um, but as, as an organization, we are very particular about not setting ourselves up to, uh, to, to fail uh, because we understand that even a monotherapy uh, uh, drug uh, will ultimately have to be combined with something um, or the other, right? So monotherapy of, uh, of 40, 50, 60% monotherapy is, is not exciting enough for us uh, when we are trying to address a big problem of cancer resistance because then you come back to square one uh, of, uh, of addressing uh, resistance. So monotherapy to address cancer resistance doesn't look like a very attractive proposition. Um, and hence, we are very, uh, very vetted to the concept of combination therapy. But we do not, uh, we do not, um, uh, we, we do not decline to uh, develop our drugs as a monotherapy. We actually have other products in our, uh, we have other drugs in our portfolio uh, that provide monotherapy data. But that is at the latter stage of treatment, not at, at early stages of treatment, right? So latter stages of treatment, once the resistance has developed, then it's a different story. But to do it as a first line or second line as a monotherapy only, there's bound to be resistance that gets developed. You're looking at this in combination with immunotherapies. Are you looking at any combinations that involve other kinase inhibitors? Yes, interestingly, we do have, uh, we do have some uh, data uh, in combination with other kinase inhibitors. Uh, but the interest of capital efficiency and the interest of focus, our immediate focus is going to be with OM001 in combination with uh, Kitruda. And we would also like to um, uh, develop OM001 in combination with Decentric. And then we have other, other things on our uh, portfolio uh, that, that takes a lot of our time. So OM601 and OM302 also plays a, takes, takes up a lot of time as well. This is a, a potential target in a, a broad number of cancers. How are you determining which indications to pursue and how are you prioritizing those? Yes, so uh, the, there's two parts to that question. Uh, the first part, how do we identify in, uh, a lead indication? Uh, this is really based on the data that we have generated till now uh, and where we see as the highest probability of success uh, for this particular drug in combination with Keytruda. We have also discussed this at length with our partners uh, as well. And uh, we've come to a conclusion that we will be moving to 
develop OM001 uh, for colorectal cancer, uh, and that's in combination with uh, Keytruda. Uh, the 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 fact that this drug or this particular pathway plays an important role in uh, multiple uh, tumor types. Uh, we are also very uh, we are we we take pride in how the clinical trials are designed uh, as well, Danny. Um, we feel very confident on the fact that our track record of conducting over 150 clinical studies allows us to design a trial which is more a basket trial rather than a single trial, single indication, uh, and have different arms to it where you can decide whether the first readout on the data is good enough for you to advance it to the next stage, or you actually kill the uh, kill that particular arm and transfer the patients or move the move the patient to a different uh, therapeutic regimen uh, per se. So we we depend on the fact of basket trials and umbrella trials on innovative trial designs to help us reach to a proof of concept as quickly as we can and in the lowest amount of capital expenditure as we can. Known about 001 from studies that have been done to date. So we have uh, we have completed our uh, two phase one studies for OM001. Uh, one was done in Singapore, one was done in Australia. Uh, and some key highlights that we have observed from that, number one, we have seen solid target engagement. Uh, at a very low dose, we have seen solid target engagement, which, which validates the fact that this drug is targeting where it's supposed to target, uh, which is fantastic. Um, we have also seen that at the, at the highest dose in phase one settings, uh, we have not seen any form of major serious adverse events. Um, and uh, you, we, have, we have seen some minor grade one, grade two serious adverse events, but nothing major that's going to be of concerning. Uh, and that was actually very exciting when you think of a combination therapy, you are developing a drug uh, in combination with already a standard of care. Um, you can be rest assured that uh, the uh, the um, SAEs or toxicities associated with uh, with with the combination therapy, you you can be rest assured that not a lot of the toxicity is going to come in from our drug. Uh, so that unknown of additional toxicity for a combination therapy is kind of addressed quite significantly. And the more importantly, the focus then becomes on. Uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 actual patient data that we intend to generate in the coming uh, months as well. And what's the development path forward? So we have uh, we have received a uh, ethics committee approval for OM001 from the Australian uh, regulatory bodies. Uh, we have initiated a global phase two trial uh, with sites uh, in Australia. Uh, we will be initiating sites in the U.S. and some part of Europe. Um, we are looking at approximately 110 patient trial. Uh, the study has already begun. Um, we the the first patient in is imminent any time uh, now, and we'll be happy to share that news with you once that happens. Uh, and we expect that uh, the 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 study, which is broken into two modules, module one and module two. We expect that the module one data readout should come out uh, in, in the next couple of uh, quarters. Uh, that should give us a hint on proof of concept uh, for, for this particular drug 
uh, in, in the coming months. So we're very excited about the fact and we're going full, full speed ahead on this particular trial and uh, expecting some data uh, coming out of that. Tom is based in Singapore. I, I know Singapore made a, a big push into biotech and, and really was highlighting the sector. It's got a rather advanced healthcare system as well. How are you thinking about markets and clinical trials in regard to your geography? Yeah, I, I mean, we, I, I feel that uh, trial cannot be a single country trial. And especially with the thought process at home, we have a mandate that any drug that we develop will need to have a US IND right from the outset. Um, and for one simple reason that a phase one study done in Asia can be done uh, at con in countries where there is very solid uh, uh, backing from, uh, from regulatory bodies such as USFDA, uh, so that the data is actually accepted by the USFDA um, when we go in into a phase two study, which is a much larger uh, phase two study. Um, and to, to just close the loop on that, I, I, I think we have never been of an opinion that doing a study in one country is a good enough answer for us. And, and hence, all our studies that you will see are going to be global in nature when it's a phase two program that you're looking at so that you can get a diversity of patient population coming in from the West, coming in from the East, uh, and then combining that to give a solid data pool uh, when we are actually thinking of advancing and uh, getting a proof of concept uh, around it. So our mandate and mantra is really to look at a global approach right from the very beginning, even though we are based in Singapore, but we will be uh, we will be looking at, uh, we are already a global company with presence in Australia, presence in the US and recent uh, uh, expansion in, uh, uh, in a small setup uh, in China uh, as well. So we are getting ready for it. Uh, global is the name of the game, uh, not, not individual country studies. Um, did a, a financing late in 2022 to raise money. Can you explain that transaction and how far will existing cash take you? Yes, so I am going to share as much as I can with regards to that because we are bound by confidentiality on that. Uh, but yes, what's in public domain, we did a SPAC um, uh, in October, 2022. At the time of closure, the SPAC had 69 million uh, US dollars in the trust. Um, the pre-money equity value on that was 400 million US dollars. Uh, we we are all aware about the fact that SPACs come in with uh, with certain level of redemption uh, redemptions as well. Uh, we are actively um, uh, raising uh, pipe financing, and we are actually getting some very good interest from the market uh, on on our pipe financing. But what of all these things, what doesn't change is the, what we are going to focus on even after we become a public company, and that is. Uh, being a uh, being a capital efficient uh, company, uh, and to answer your question, uh, with the cash, the existing cash that we have, and the various financings that we have done till date, uh, it it gives us uh, enough runway uh, for additional twelve to uh, eighteen months time. Um, and we will be looking at raising additional capital 
as we we may need to advance our programs uh, further. So very exciting times with two clinical programs, two two preclinical programs that we currently have. Uh, and uh, and once we generate more data, I'm sure we are we are going to uh, generate a lot of interest uh, in the market. So do keep a lookout for own biosciences, and and uh, we are excited about this. Michelle Doshi, CEO of Own Biosciences. Michelle, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Danielle. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.